history and memory, remembrance, all of that doesn't actually exist in a vacuum. It may be the past, but it's never really something you draw a line on and say, well, it's done. The consequences of that is in the present and the way you remember is in the present. So everything from your socioeconomic standing to the political situations, to your aspirations for self-articulation, all of that are part of how, when, and why you remember. Welcome to Transitional Justice in America, a podcast from the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. The coalition is a global network of over 350 historic sites, museums, and memory initiatives in more than 65 countries, all dedicated to using past struggles to address social injustice today. I'm your host, Purusha Naidu. I'm a program coordinator with the coalition's Global Transitional Justice Initiative which works to support transitional justice processes by engaging local civil society organizations, survivors, and governments in a participatory, inclusive, and holistic manner. To help American sites learn from the work already being done around the world, we paired up US-based Sites of Conscience with Sites of Conscience members in Colombia, the Gambia, South Africa, and Sri Lanka, all countries that have or are currently undergoing transitional justice processes. In this episode, we're listening in on a conversation between Radhika Hetiarachi and Anna Edwards. Radhika is a researcher, curator, and development practitioner based in Sri Lanka. Her work centers on oral history and memory, socioeconomic stability, conflict transformation, and peacebuilding work. Radhika is also the founder of Her Stories, a virtual site of conscience that has collected over 280 personal narratives of mothers from the north, south and east of Sri Lanka. Anna is chair of the Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project in Richmond, Virginia. Sacred Ground is a social justice organization that has worked for eight years to help reclaim Richmond's African burial ground and is currently engaged in the community struggle to preserve and memorialize historic Shako Bottom through the establishment of a nine-acre memorial park and educational campus. Before we begin, I want to briefly explain the historical context for Radhika's work. It has been 12 years since the three-decade ethnic war in Sri Lanka concluded in 2009, but still, Sri Lanka remains a divided country, characterized by a victory narrative and ongoing structural inequalities. Policy and practice continue to marginalize the Tamils in favor of the majority Sinhalese. These divides are further entrenched due to geographic separation of the two groups. Since the election of Kotapaya Rajapaksa in 2019, There's also been a steady rollback of the democratic reforms achieved under the previous governments, resulting in increasing authoritarian and militarized governance, eroding of the rule of law, undermining of human rights, and silencing of any voices of dissent or truth-telling efforts. Sri Lanka has backtracked on many of its commitments to transitional justice. However, a new UN Human Rights Council resolution, adopted in 2021, offers some hope for a reconciliation process for victims. 
Now let's hear from Radhika and Anna about their efforts to implement transitional justice processes in Sri Lanka and Virginia, USA. Radhika, can you begin by introducing yourself and the work that you do? What I do is I archive people's life histories and use those histories to start conversations on belonging, coexistence, with the aim of reducing fear and mistrust among each other and learning about each other, particularly in a context like Sri Lanka after 26 years of war. So, you know, from that, tell us the story of how you found your way to transitional justice work. Transitional justice is a technical process generally, but it is a space in time where you're moving from conflict to peace and trying to address some of those root causes of conflict and to, in some cases, try and find ways in which to repair that damage, to find justice for those who are wronged and create changes at a structural level that will hopefully prevent the same kinds of conflict from coming up. It's about sort of finding ways in which people can deal with the past and deal with how that affects the present in a more informed and structured way. So for me, uh, I was working in peace-building work uh, for quite some time, and I was working on post-tsunami recovery work at the same time. So it's sort of an overlapping thing where I was working on peace-building with post-tsunami development work. And Every time we went to talk to people who were affected by the tsunami and by the conflict, people would always tell us what they went through. Usually, it was about asking people what they needed to you know, develop. or to, It was about asking people what they needed to recover from what they've been through. And of course, Sri Lankans are natural storytellers, so we do like to talk and tell, us, tell other people about what we've been through. As they were doing that, I was also realizing that I was taking down notes of what people needed, but I was not really recording the life experiences that they've had. And very soon, we were speaking to so many people, but each person had a story, and that story went unrecorded. So this was how I wanted to get into this work as a way of documenting people's experiences so that we could actually, as an archive, the collection of these archived stories would lend credibility to the kind of work that is necessary for transitional justice. So it was what memory was, especially for women, and how can that memory actually lend itself towards repairing the damage that was inflicted upon the social fabric of the country because of the war. And in telling those personal truths, find a way to not just create a public record of those, because most often people's histories are not part of public records, right? They, They become personal or family histories, and they're never shared with the majority. And if you don't hear what people have been through, if you don't know, your vision becomes myopic. So this is about broadening the ability to listen to people and know what everybody went through in depending on their ethno political social situation their experiences would be different but as a collection this enables policymakers it enables us as citizens to think about how and what kind of peace we should actually create after conflict so you know given that description sort of the broader picture of 
both a little bit of an intimation of it coming out of natural disaster on the one hand and then political disaster <laughs> on the other. Talk about the specific projects. You have her stories and you have memory map and the distinctions between the two. The Her Stories project was one of the first projects after the end of the war that started recording women's histories. Now, the objective of that project was really about feminizing the historical record. It was about making sure that women's histories, women's experiences of conflict are not left out of the master narrative. And the dominant narratives of the time were basically informed by the way the war ended, which is a military solution to a long-standing socio-economic and political conflict. So in the way the government at the time reacted in the post-war nation-building situation was really about highlighting and emphasizing military machismo and using that to create narratives of nationalism, which was legitimizing their rule. So women's histories in that context was completely left out. The Her Stories Projects comes as a way to correct that record. It comes as a way to capture women's narratives from more than just a point of victimhood. Because a lot of the time, when governments in their nation-building processes pursue a sort of a very masculine lens of history, they also use women's histories, but as a victim or as motherhood or, you know, of loss and grief. But what of the stories of women's courage and their agency and their search for the truth? All of that is not part of that grand narrative. It doesn't further agendas of power or not, not the way we want it to. It, it furthers agendas of power in a negative sense because they're used, but it doesn't capture the true nature of women's histories. So the Her Stories project really is about making sure that that record is corrected, that that voice is visible, and that women are present in historical narrative. But one of the things that's interesting about that project is that it remained an archive, partially due to the political situation in the country at this time. Once there was a bit more space to become more active, what happened was that we tried to develop a project that came out of the lessons learned and out of the methodology developed for the Her Stories project by creating a project that not only archived histories as a product, but went forward as a process. Instead of collecting and archiving women's histories and people's histories as the end product or the end goal of that uh, activity, the, the Memory Map Project tried to use those histories to have conversations on peace uh, and have conversations on connectedness and values and difference, particularly trying to create an understanding of the kinds of different experiences people went through depending on who they are, where they're from, and what level of access they had to reparations or what level of access they had to services. Basically, the Memory Map Project took the kind of archiving process from a product to a process, which was all about making sure that the histories didn't remain as crystallized as an archive only, that the histories were actually used to create conversations as a launching pad to create conversations on peace building and on justice and why people's histories were important. I think that's really such an important description of transition, as you said, 
right, from product to process is something that is often left out of really good work, especially as people are trying to find good ways to articulate challenges to certain aspects of community will focus on oral histories, simply the collection, simply going into a library or a place to be tapped by scholars, typically, but not by the broader community. Usually at the end of that process, and especially for the participants, I think, there is an anticlimactic feeling about it. And so in addition to, you know, sort of the concrete good work that comes out of turning this into a process by which this actually contributes to making a difference is also, I think, then maybe the individual sense of having actually contributed to to something larger. I mean, there are tensions and there are complexities with this type of work, obviously, because, you know, those larger goals, whose goals are they? You know, does it actually come from an organic process of people who want to actually share their histories or does it come from a place where outsiders create an incentive for that kind of work. So it's, it's, a, it's a very complex situation in that if you leave it to organic processes of memory making or construction of histories, and obviously there are such processes. I mean, at the very uh, grassroots level, the way people remember their dead, the way people narrate their stories over and over for the community to envelop them and provide them that safe space uh, to share their pain and their grief over and over with the hope that maybe healing may come at some point. Those organic processes for the benefit of the individual, which obviously is worth it. But if there could be a little bit more by bringing all of that together so that it can actually have a larger purpose, we could do much more with it. But it is about giving people the choice to do that, to make sure that they understand why they're memorializing their experiences are going to benefit the larger community. But of course, we can't ask people to tell their stories, right? We can't ask people to do this for a greater goal because that may not be what they want at the time. So it's always a collaborative exercise. It's always something that has to be done with awareness and empathy and respect. I'm thinking as you're talking about, you know, the work that we're doing here in Richmond around a particular early African-American cemetery or burial space where, you know, we began with the intention of sort of joining with others who had been unpacking bits of this history in Richmond and trying to sort of reveal that there was this history of slavery along with this history of Richmond as a center of sort of the development of the American psyche. So these are things that are all familiar, I think, to people, but is the notion then that within the city itself where people are actually living their lives, here is this this space that was created for a short period of time so that people of African descent could have a space to bury their people, potentially engage in those rituals that help to remind them of who they are, where they came from, and you know maybe what's next. And then it gets taken, it gets covered over, they're pushed to another space, And then over the centuries, these disappeared spaces now in this particular moment become really critical acts of reclamation, right, for the self, but also for the collective community. And and yet each of these projects comes usually from one or two people forming a small group 
that has an idea of what the goal should be for that particular space. What does it mean for us collectively? And what does it mean, say, for the family or the, the, the particular community that this place represents? And so it is really interesting that that then also becomes a part of the negotiation with sort of the larger civic landscape and what are the aspirations for, again, the, you know, the whole municipal entities. Like, how is this place being reclaimed and elevated to become a part of the memory making for the larger community? How is it going to fit into that? And is it going to serve, you know, the larger goal? And, and actually, there's never a single goal and it's constantly shifting, right? History and memory, remembrance, all of that doesn't actually exist in a vacuum, right? It, it is, it may be the past, but it's never really something you draw a line on and say, well, it's done. The consequences of that is in the present and the way you remember is in the present. So everything from your socioeconomic standing to the political situations to your aspirations for self-articulation, all of that are part of how, when, and why you remember. And obviously, it differs from person to person from, you know, based on who they are, where they're from, and where their goals are. But the important thing is that that negotiation does happen. And that's where democracy plays a role. That's where the ability to have that conversation matters. And I think for us with this project, and, and I'm, I'm imagining for you as well, it is about creating that safe space where that conversation can happen. It may seem like a very small thing. We may not be talking to you know, a nation at large in the end. It might just be a few people, but it is still a conversation that will resonate not just with those few people, but the people they come into contact with. And hopefully there'll be a snowball effect, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that is what we hope because we do work, as you say, in, in specific spaces. In thinking about that, it's bringing up sort of ideas also of those safe spaces. In our case, this space that we're trying to create is a literal physical space where a particular sort of set of events, you know, happened, but is recognized because it was a cemetery or a burial ground as also a place of contemplation sort of honoring. And, and therefore, I think people do tend to be drawn to spaces like that as a space where you, you sort of quiet down and then can engage in serious conversations, hopefully sort of peer-to-peer -peer in that way. And the idea of having a, a land base or a, a public space also in which this can take place and still feel safe, I'm wondering how that idea relates to this phrase that we have in our, in our set of questions here that refers to body mapping. When I was talking, I was just thinking, there's a very similar circumstance here as well. The, the, in the North, during the war, the, the graveyards of the, the LTTE, the, the fighters of the rebels, however you want to call them, who fought for self-determination, there were graveyards that were, again, there were spaces for grief and reflection, but they were also utilized for, you know, grander narratives by creating a martyr's day by the powers that were controlling that space at that time. So there are, you know, questions about the space and the freedom and the safety of it. But the fact that at the end of the war, a lot of these spaces, the cemeteries were destroyed, has a lot to similar circumstances to what you're talking about, because they were raised to the ground, and then they don't exist. So from the perspective of 
recording these stories, particularly of women and men who had relatives who they had lost to war, whose graveyards don't exist. Sometimes this, the kind of oral history recording, is literally the only proof that they ever existed. Because the name, the person that they talk about, and, and usually when they talk about these people, they don't really talk about this person was a fighter and did this and did that. It's usually things like, oh, he loved this, or he loved this. He was a kind person, you know? It's always about the person. And so in recording these histories, it kind of brings that person back to life, especially when there is no physical space to grieve anymore. And what's really interesting about that process is that in doing that, in recording that oral history, in mapping the person's life out, there is this opportunity to reclaim that identity, to stake a claim on that identity by saying, this happened, this person lived, and you kind of ground it in narrative because you can't ground it in the, on the ground. You can't ground it in a physical space. So it's really interesting dynamic that about, you know, how you, you lose a physical space of safety for grieving and reflection, but you create that in your conversation, in your memory, in your remembrance. When you think about the way these stories are articulated, the body maps or the trees of life, letters, for example, they're also interesting because they create that safe space to state that claim on that identity. Because, for example, the letters, uh, when you think about women's histories, asking women to write their stories in their own space, in their own homes, on whatever paper they have, gives women the space to talk about how they felt about something, not just the facts and the figures of what was lost or what happened, but actually how they felt about it. And they can write it in a life history format, which is basically from the day they were born or the parents, where their parents came from, or the land that they left behind, all the way to what happened, how they felt about it, and what their hopes are and how they feel about themselves, you know? So it gives you that ability or gives a woman the ability to narrate her full life story. But more than that, it gives a woman the space away from the male gaze in their own home and the ability to self-censor. That, the fact that you can actually create and construct your history, and obviously for various reasons, depending on what the security situation is or, or what your life circumstances are now, you may want to change the way you look, at, look back on your history and you may want to change your details. But that, that's fine. You know, it's not meant to be that our truths are one truth that stays static, right? Those truths can actually change if we want them to change. So it's a really interesting dynamic because as a collective, if you're looking at the people's histories or women's histories from the same area, you will start drawing this sort of map. In Western scholarship in particular, oral histories have sort of more recently, you know, maybe in the last quarter century, kind of come into their own, being treated with as valuable records of past events, often of more recent past events. And at the same time, I think what it is that they, as, you, as you're describing, what it is that they offer is not just a record of what happened but a record of the feelings associated with the person, you know, offering the story, which extends to that, that other word, which is meaning, right? What is the meaning of that event to that person? What is the meaning of that person's experience to the person or entity that is maybe tapping into this recording? Because 
without the meaning of it, you are not actually getting a strong enough sense of the significance of the event. And I think these kinds of projects give the women participating a sense that what matters to them, what has meaning for them, they know the role that it plays in the decisions that they make and in how they respond to the circumstances or how they drive circumstances um, that they are a part of. But as you say, the women's perspective, and certainly in the Western world as well, we deal with that, that the national narrative is masculine. We're seeing that play out in Europe right now. What is the female perspective? What is the woman's perspective in this range of historical events and in the range of ways in which we engage this reclamation process. And I, I see women's organizations trying to sort that out, you know, asserting a kind of agency and asserting a voice. I think they're speaking to each other more so than they are speaking to men or more so than they are speaking to a male, you know, world. That's quite a powerful dynamic to recognize. In our project, we're not seeing that exactly. But it's probably because we haven't really looked at it that way. You know, it's been about the space. It's been about the community as a whole. The people who have been the principal reclaimers have been both men and women and have been younger and older, which is a kind of interesting thing to see more younger people participating in it. What's really interesting about that is that there's also intergenerational dialogue there. It's not just women speaking to women. It's women speaking to younger women. And older women speaking to younger women. And there is this transfer of memory, transfer of desire to be heard, which I think you do need. There is no sort of end to this kind of work, really. It is a battle, right? So it keeps going. And the more intergenerational dialogue you can have, the more you can bring in younger voices towards whatever those goals are. And, and even if there are no goals to be discussed, it is still a discussion that takes place in the public sphere. And let's talk about how this work has affected you personally. To be honest, it's, it has affected me. And sometimes I don't see it and I don't think it has. And, you know, with COVID and the, and the sort of the time lapse almost of like nothing happening in our lives, going back to the work was quite jarring. And the first time I actually heard a story of a woman after COVID, it affected me really badly for quite some time. And that's when I realized that actually they do affect me in ways that I, I never knew before. And I think that's where, you know, being aware of that and sort of seeking help or, or just somebody to talk to really uh, about, you know, how these stories affect you is important. Working with local organizations in doing memorialization work, especially when it's projectized as it is, you know, when it's a memory initiative as, as opposed to an organic process, you do end up in the end with these stories of a particular strata of society, socioeconomically and politically more disadvantaged in a way than yourself. And that privilege is something that is very hard to grapple with. And that affects me. You know, there's a constant clash internally because I'm thinking, well, is this work really necessary to be done? If we don't do it, as a, from a historical point of view, as a historian, then you think, well, it has to be done because it'll change, memory will fade, we'll lose this narrative. But then 
if people are not ready for it, then you're imposing it. So there's always this battle in my head and that really does affect me because you think about if it's an imposition, then it's not really valid because you're asking people to share their stories when they're not ready. So timing, sequencing, all of that really matters, right? The stories affect me in a lot of different ways and this constant grappling with the methodologies and the concepts behind oral history as a process of memorialization it's not easy, but I suppose it is necessary. And that's what makes the work valid in a way, because you, you do think about this. You do think about privilege. You do think about what it means to be, in my case, someone who hasn't been directly affected by conflict, whereas so many others have been. I've been here. I've been in this space, but I haven't, I haven't lost anyone to conflict. I haven't, you know, been through that in a way that some of these people have. And I suppose it makes the same kind of sense to you with the project that you're dealing with as well. I mean, as an organization, you may not have been through the same situation. So I suppose the conversation then is the, more, is the important thing. I think that even if you, as you say, you, you may not have lost anyone directly to the conflict, it's still your place. It's still your home. There was something about, you know, your engagement with, you know, women and men and children that made you want to do, you know, this particular project. And I think that in many ways, this is a way for you as an individual to process the trauma, you know, that you saw and, you know, were aware of, you know, so quickly. And how do you help? I mean, I think, you know, something sort of catastrophic happens and you immediately want to help. And so how do you help? And we all have different points of engagement with it. And so this is certainly one way in which a historian or a person who works in human development can engage their skill set in order to help yourself process what's going on while also trying to be useful to the individual and useful to you know society as a whole. It becomes critically important that there is that self-examination, there is that awareness and that sensitivity to being aware of how your process works with other people's processes. I mean, the thing is, with things like memory and, you know, people's experiences, laying a transitional justice framework over it or peace-building goals over it can be pushing that narrative towards a place it doesn't want to go or need to go sometimes. But as long as you have that conversation with the people that require something, that whether it's justice or the truth or to at least be able to put their stories down so that their children and the future generations can access it. For example, this woman said, like, you know, at the end of the project, we were asking various people what they, why they participated, what they wanted to do. And this one woman said that, her children are not interested in her experience at the moment, but she's hoping that even if she's gone, if it's in the archive, that maybe her grandchildren might be able to look at it or her children might be able to look at it. So there are, there are different purposes to why people want to record their stories and why they and how they want it to be used. And for some people, it was very much about this happened to me. I thought my experience was the only experience. But I want, I want to know about what other people went through and I want them to know about what I went through. And usually it's, it, it is to do with acknowledgement. Having it on paper or having it as a voice recording somewhere gives you the assurance that they're not going to be lost, 
right? And it also gives you or gives the people who share those stories a sense that their story is undeniable. It is there and it's accessible to other people. So I went back to meet a lot of the women 10 years after and some of the women are, are no more. And you know, their children talk about how their mother or father died and if they ever got the answers they were looking for. In a lot of the cases, they didn't. And the children saw and read some of these letters that they wrote. And for them, it was powerful because it was there. And we asked them, do you, do you still want your parents or your mother's or your father's uh, letter in the archive? And almost everyone said yes. And there was interesting one person who wanted to retract uh, their story, and it was a young girl who had now gotten married and had a child. So she didn't want any trace of her past in her present life. And she wanted it out of the archive, which obviously we did immediately. It's your right to choose whether you want your story as part of the archive or not. And at any point you want it out, it's out. Which from a historical point of view, you, you're thinking, oh, that's, that's going to be, you know, another piece that's missing. But obviously it is absolutely the right of the person to do that, right? And it's very interesting how actually history is always thought of from the present moment. And wherever you are at this time is how you decide what works or what doesn't. The privilege of, you know, modern day society is that we have the technology to be able to, and, and also the sort of social evolution space to say, we need to record these stories. You know, the history that I'm talking about with the African burial ground is, you know, 18th century and 19th century. And I think of how many people would have really loved to have been able to, you know, have recordings of their ancestors' stories, small and large, you know, from that period, and what it means to be able to record these things proximal to, to the affecting event, how what we are doing now is trying to recreate or reconstruct these stories. And so typically it's been the older family members who have been most interested because they also carry the longest memories um, about who might be in these burial spaces and who those people were when they were alive, if they knew them uh, when they were very young. And then their children, you know, sort of the contemporary adult at this moment, is a little bit interested, but they're busy. They're busy managing the present and the effect of their relationship with their parent or that generation, their relationships with their children or that generation. So they're literally living in this moment. And so the children are there to be, to have stories told to them. It is the grandparents and the older caregivers that tend to bring the children to these places to pass these stories, to share with them their ideas of what it was like to go from one life circumstance to another life circumstance. And then you leave it with the young kids because then they're gotta, they got to go off and grow up and go through their stuff. Later one day they will sit there and they will, that question will pop up, that memory will pop up and it will trigger you know, that interest. And so that's the cycle that we're, you know, we're, we're keenly aware of. And it's a cycle that it's so important, you know, as we are finding these ways of doing it to ensure survive so that they can be tapped into. And like you said, some individual stories will be lost, but in the effort and in the process of doing it, we still convey that 
these stories do matter. As the stories pass through generations, they may change, but the people that listen and hear and process the stories are also then part of that story, right? So, for example, I mean, just like you were saying, in one of the spaces where we did this village mapping exercise with young children, they, they drew their village first, and then they started layering that history one over the other with, you know, what they see, what they think their parents have told them about that place. And in one of these um, places, they had marked this space saying, this is, uh, this is, you know, in brown, and said, we don't know what this is. This is where we don't play, is what what they had said. And they didn't know why. So when the grandparents came into that picture at the end of that process where the kids had drawn the map, they had layered it with histories that they knew, and then the grandparents came in to layer it with histories that they didn't know. And then they asked the question of why, why is it that we don't play there? And that's when one of the grandparents said, well, that's a place where, you know, a massacre happened and, you know, so many people died there. And that's why we don't play there. So that history, even though it exists in the present and you, you know that you don't play there, there must be a reason, but they didn't know why. So that transference of that memory makes the kids now part of that history because now they know why they don't play there. It's a really interesting thing because as you said, they will grow up, they will mull over this, they'll think about it. And hopefully, one, that history won't be lost, but two, they will try to think, hopefully, about what that means for contemporary society, what happened there, and the experiences of their grandparents, what that might mean for contemporary society in terms of peace, in terms of justice, in terms of how you negotiate and engage in democracy and governance in a way that is respectful to the human being. And so the last question is really, what advice would you have for anybody that's wanting to embark on a transitional justice initiative? Well, at one level, it's to ensure that it is something that is required and, and to work collaboratively with everybody involved at every stage to make sure that it is something that really does resonate, it is something needed, and then you can negotiate and articulate how you engage with that process as you go along. The other thing to remember, I would say, is that even though transitional justice itself is a technical process, the way you engage with it individually and the way memory, for example, plays out in that process is something that will change over time. The more flexible you are, in not having defined goals, but figuring out as you go along what really matters to the people involved and then working on that is obviously something that resonates. And I think the basic thing to remember really from my own experience is that history is multidirectional. It's not something that happened in the past. Its impact is contemporary. And it is something that is multi-generational. So this work that we're doing or we're trying to do was started by women before us, men and women before us, I should say. And it is us as well, and it will definitely be carried on by others. So it's a multi-generational thing, and it really is something that, well, it, it carries on. The goals will change, the, the reason why it exists will change, but the work will carry on. And that, that is something that is quite an interesting dimension of it. Because I think often we projectize 
a lot of this work, it, you know, three-year cycles or five-year cycles of work, but actually it's multi-generational. So it's not really lost. <laughs> I'm really moved by the idea that what this really does represent is a, is a kind of mindfulness and, and a presence and a centering, you know, on that awareness and really connecting with people, I think, in such an intentional way that, that we don't forget that when we are talking to others, they are talking to us. And I think that psych, pushing that cycle towards some kind of change at a structural level, whether it's, whether it's the way we think, whether it's our institutions, whether, you know, even institutions like democracy, the way we engage with it, the way we create it for ourselves, that conversation is, I think, the, the living experience. You've been listening to Transitional Justice in America, a podcast from the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. Our guests in this episode were Radhika Hetiarachi and Anna Edwards. You can find out more about Radhika's work at theherstoryarchive.org. To learn more about the Sacred Ground Historical Reclamation Project, visit sacredgroundproject.net. The International Coalition of Sites of Conscience is the only global network of historic sites, museums, and memory initiatives dedicated to using past struggles to address social justice challenges today. This podcast draws on lessons from the Global Initiative for Justice, Truth, and Reconciliation, which is a flagship project of the coalition that seeks to support communities either in or emerging from conflict by elevating the voices of survivors and marginalized groups. For more information, visit sitesofconscience.org and gijtr.org. This podcast was written, edited, and produced by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. I've been your host, Parisha Naidu. Stay tuned for the next episode of Transitional Justice in America, a conversation between Fatou Balde a scholar and an activist from the Gambia addressing sexual and gender-based violence, and Dr. Amber Johnson, creator of the Justice Fleet, a mobile social justice museum in the U.S.